Hey friends, welcome back to Real Talk with Rachel. I'm your host, Rachel Gilbert, and I am grateful and honored that you've chosen to tune in today. This show is a safe place you can come to hear relevant, engaging, and authentic topics to help you get real, live free, and pursue your God-given dreams. Before we introduce you to today's guests, I want to share a new resource that I've created that is a free download only for a limited time, and it is a biblical body image coloring book. This was so fun to create, and I pray it blesses you. So to download it, all you should do is head to rachelgilbert.com forward slash biblical body image. And it's also going to be available in print format if you prefer that and more details are to come. So just grab your free download and you'll stay in the loop on all the body image resources that are released. And again, the link to do that is at rachelgilbert.com forward slash biblical body image. Creating that color book was a little uncomfortable for me because I've actually never done anything like that. And so speaking of uncomfortable, that's exactly what I chatted about with today's guest. Dr. Deb Gordon is the Gary Chapman Chair of Marriage, Family Ministry, and Therapy at Moody Theological Seminary and Graduate School. For more than 14 years, Deb's worked as a change agent for individuals, organizations, and emerging leaders, helping them refine, embrace, and thrive in their purpose. Built on the foundation of relationship, her core philosophy is that collaboration and community produces radical transformation. Deb resides in Chicago, and she's also the host of the Becoming Well podcast. You guys are going to love Deb, so let's jump right into that conversation. Well, hello, Deb, and welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So before we jump into the conversation that we're going to have, I would love for you to tell everybody what's one random fun fact about you that we did not read in your professional bio. Oh, so this isn't in my bio. There's a taste of it in my book. But when I was in grad school, I made a habit out of sneaking into award shows. So I snuck into the Emmys. I snuck into the Golden Globes. I do not recommend it, but it was a lot of fun. (laughs) Okay, I'm sure everybody's follow-up question is how, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I discovered if you look and act the part, people don't oftentimes question you. And so in the chaos of all of these award shows, (laughs) I just managed to kind of slide my way in. I love that. That is, that might be my favorite random bio fact ever. That's super (laughs) cool. And you said something that will, that will preach. If you look and act the part, people don't question you. (laughs) Right. And, and if you knew me, like I am so a by the rules, by the book kind of gal. So I love to share that because it's like the least expected thing that people would anticipate coming out of my mouth. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. Okay. So we're going to talk today about your new book called Embracing Uncomfortable. And I love the tagline. I guess what you call underneath it says facing our fears while pursuing our purpose. I that just makes me get so excited because that's my big heart for this whole show is to help women do that very thing. So I would love to know where did this heart for you to write this book come from? Yeah, you know, it's probably a a good combination of my work as a clinical psychologist and what I encountered with my clients. But even more so, I, I feel like God just kind of place this journey on my heart from a very young age. And, you know, a pivotal point in my life was about 12 years ago, my mom tragically took her own life. And it really forced me to confront a lot of these false beliefs about my own identity. I had a a core piece, which was thinking I was kind of the fixer and the problem solver in my family. And then here's this kind of ultimate 
tragic problem that I couldn't solve. And Mm -hmm. it made me really question, is that really who I am? And is that what gives me significance? And as I started to peel back the layers of that, I realized, no, that's not my core identity. And ultimately, it's not even what's most important to me. It's not my purpose, not my value. There are good things in helping others, but that's not who I believe God created me to be. And as I started to recognize what it meant to live out my true purpose and and what was most important to me, what my core values were, I realized, wow, in like the little day-to-day decisions, this is hard. Like the bigger picture you know, yes, I'm moving towards that. But in the everyday stuff, which I think really is what matters, making this choice is, is has to be intentional and deliberate. And it's oftentimes really uncomfortable. Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, I'm so sorry about your mom. The topic of suicide is one that is near and dear to my heart as well. I had a friend take her life. It'll be three years ago this October. And I wrestled with those same feelings of like, what, why didn't you do something, you know, like all the things and, and they still kind of try to come up, you know, even when it's near her anniversary, like just that, well, like you said, it is those false beliefs, but it's still very real. So can you speak to that? I just sense there might be some people listening today who it may not be around suicide, but I think we all have something in our life where we go, we're just wrestling with those false beliefs about what we could have done or should have done or all those things. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, it's so hard. I mean, specific to the topic of suicide. I don't know anybody who hasn't encountered who has encountered this personally, who hasn't had that question of like, could I have done something differently? Or, you know, what if I had only and I think those words, you know, words are powerful. I think those words are key indicators. And it's hard. It's hard to live in a gray, like it's hard for me at times to say, I'll never fully understand the full scope of this situation. And I think for for people wrestling in any of those places, the what ifs, the shoulds, the could haves, you know, it comes down to for me, like, where, where do we really see our identity? And, you know, I talk a little bit about this, this topic of failure in the book, and how so often I see, and myself included, too many people making the experience of failure in their life an identity versus an experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would imagine that you can look over your life and you can see points in time where you failed at something. It's just kind of an, I mean, we're all going to experience it, but so often we're so afraid of failure or when we encounter failure, we make it a, a failure identity. Like I am a failure versus I failed at something. And, you know, to kind of bring it back around to this particular topic, I think that's so easily a part of what happens when somebody takes their life as we, we almost take it as a part of our identity that I failed, I am a failure. And so, you know, it's important, it's critical that we validate and we allow ourselves to feel the deep emotional pain and anguish of those losses, but to not let that pain and despair and anguish define our identity. And I think those things can motivate that that failure identity. And so really keeping them within the context of what they are. I feel these things and they're really painful and heavy, but they have no bearing on my identity. Yeah. I love what you said. Uh, that's really profound. And I want to repeat it because I think that there probably were some people listening who said, whoa, what'd she just say when you said that the experience of failure, we take it on as an identity rather than just an experience, you know, and man, to be able to separate ourselves from that, that's so huge. And almost for me anyways, makes me embrace failure a little bit more of, okay, it's just an experience. Like, what can I learn from here? And how can I be a better leader and a better mom? You know, like, and just, you know, and, and I don't know about you, but I've rarely met anybody who 
I admire or look up to in life who hasn't had some failure, you know, because failure does something to our character. I mean, it like shapes us. It makes us, you know, humble. It does all the things that is if you skip the failure, it's not gonna be very good. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, and, and, and I think that's what's fascinating is like we all we all fail, but we're so afraid of failure. So I love I love what you said. I love that that inspires you to consider a different relationship with failure. I'm on this like champion trail to make, to, to, to kind of encourage people to reorient your relationship with failure, change your perspective, Yeah. see how it can be a tool in your life versus an identity you take on. Yeah, that's so good. So I just mentioned just now about the, you know, people I've looked up to who I, you know, usually they've had some kind of failure in their life. How about you on this topic of embracing uncomfortable? Have you had any role models in your life? Oh, yeah. You know, probably one of the most important people in my life is my dad. And, you know, he's, he's gone through his fair share of failures, as have I, again, as of everybody I know. And what he always taught me and what he modeled for me, which to me is so much more important, was that it wasn't about avoiding failure, or even kind of ruminating on failure, like getting stuck in the narrative of failure in your life. But it was about accepting responsibility, and I think that's so key because I think there's this fear sometimes in accepting responsibility that that if I do that, that becomes, again, like a part of who I am. And so I want to avoid that at all costs. And no, responsibility and failure, I think, shows a level of maturity that, again, goes back to this idea of identity. Like if my identity is in, for me, being created in the image of God, then when I fail, I can feel the emotion that comes with that, the disappointment, the anger, the shame even. But it empowers me to say, okay, this doesn't feel great, but I'm going to take ownership over my experience in it. And even with other people, if my failure causes messiness to splash onto them, you know, reconnecting and reestablishing relationship is huge because again, it doesn't, it doesn't weigh on my identity. Yeah. You just had a phrase in there that I was drawn to. You said, I'm going to take ownership over my piece of it. That's huge. I just think a lot of us don't you know like like we want to look at everybody else that had played a role in it but ourselves and it goes back to that whole uncomfortable thing because it's quite uncomfortable you know to really look at and go oh actually yeah I was you know a little bit of a jerk in that situation or whatever like we don't like to feel uncomfortable and I love the timing of the release of your book because this year has been nothing but a year of uncomfortable (laughs) like doing new you know just across the board so let's talk a little bit about comfort like just the word comfort and your definition of it and maybe if we have some skewed views on it yeah so when I look at comfort in the context of, of how I talk about embracing uncomfortable, I think it oftentimes has to do with what makes us feel safe and secure in the moment. And oftentimes that's based on a highly emotional situation. And so we have a skewed version of what that safety and security looks like. And it's oftentimes tied to like self-preservation, right? And so when I talk about embracing uncomfortable, it's It's an intentional practice of choosing to do what aligns more with our values in the moment and less with that sense of safety and security. And I'm not talking about putting yourself at risk or anything like that, but it really does kind of challenge us to check where our attitude and where our words and, and where our motivations are. And if they're related to kind of what you were saying, like in the moment of taking responsibility, like wanting to transfer all the blame and all the ownership to everyone else because of the fear that entails what our part was to play. So 
you know, it, it, it takes a healthy dose of humility for sure. Yeah. And you mentioned talk, you lined it up with our values. So I would love for you to talk about that a little bit because that is also a key in knowing what our values are and then choosing to do the thing that lines up with our values, even if it makes us uncomfortable. Yes. And that's something that, you know, again, I think I found over time in working with clients is we all, a lot of us anyway, have a great sense of what our values are, but we don't actually take this intentional time to really hone in on specifically what they are. So we can say like, oh, I value family or I value autonomy or, you know, all these things, but really like what are our core values? And along with that, our purpose. And I believe those things should be very universal in our lives, meaning they're not situationally specific. They apply just as much when I'm doing my nine to five day job as to raising my kids, as to interacting with my spouse, as to ordering coffee at the local coffee shop and how I interact with the barista. And so the core values, I think we can, we consider them like the sieve, if you will, we, that we sift our decision-making through. And so when I'm faced with, I mean, you know, easy decisions is one thing, but when I'm faced with a difficult decision or when I'm in a conflict with somebody I care about, or when I find myself losing my job, or when I'm having a a conversation, a very delicate conversation around race, what does it mean to demonstrate my core values in that moment? And I think that's where that discomfort comes in. Because again, we tend to default to things like justification or minimization, minimizing other people's feelings, or even our own experience or denying our part that we play in a situation, again, out of kind of this sense of false security and safety, comfort, so to speak. And so challenging ourselves, empowering ourselves, being brave to step into conversations um, for the sake of community, I really believe, by this willingness to embrace uncomfortable because it really does reflect what's most important to us. Yeah. So what are your core values and how do you recommend somebody identify their core values? So mine are Jesus, relationship, wisdom, authenticity, purpose. And I love that you asked that question because I really believe that living out embracing uncomfortable necessitates being able to say our core values like that. And I swear I didn't rehearse it. I didn't know you were going to ask me that question. Yeah. But that's how important they are in my life. There's a lot of different ways to get to the heart of your core values. For me, I put an exercise in the book that was really helpful for me. It's one of many different ways. But essentially, you know, it's it's at its core, it's really reflecting, taking intentional time. And I even mentioned in this in the book, you might be reading along, you get to this point, and you need to take a week or a month to really think through and to, and define what your core values are. Take as much time as you need, but it's those things that are really core and critical to, to who we are as a person. And so there's some exercises reflecting on the people and the places and the memories that are most important to you. And then kind of taking from that, what in those experiences or relationships signifies what was most important to you. But I think the thing that we oftentimes don't include in identifying our core values is our community. And I mean, Mm. those people who like know you to your core. Mm -hmm. I think that's critical, that feedback and that transparency that comes in relationship where people can challenge you and encourage you and a community that isn't necessarily homogenous in its thinking and it's acting. So like, it's important, I think, to have a diverse community that can really cause you to think beyond what your own experiences are. 
Yeah. And is it, is there a certain number of core values? Like, can you have too many? Can you have too few? You know? <laughs> yeah. I, that's probably the hardest thing for people is they want to, you know, they want to value, they want a lot of things to be their core values. Mm-hmm. I think, and this is probably a little bit based on social psychology, you know, we tend to overcommit to things mm-hmm. and then we get spread thin or we get confused in the, in the broadness of things. So I would say the, the ideal number is like five. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned five, five to six core values. And again, it's not that we're saying other things aren't important to us, but if you have 10, 12 core values and you're constantly sifting through those when you're making decisions, think about how easy it is to get stuck or, you know, take too much time in actually making a decision. So, so those five, I think are really a manageable number. Yeah. I love that. And I love that you were just able to, because I didn't have that question planned to ask. I was just, you know, kind of curious. And I love that you were just able to go boo, 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 because I don't think many of us could. So I'm convicted to do two things when I get off the call with you. One, write down, figure out my core values. But two, then also look at what if you were if an outsider were to evaluate my life, what would they think my core values are? You know, yeah. because sometimes we our actions don't always line up with our core values. So so true. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is such a good conversation. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit. What do you feel like is the difference between comfort and contentment? Ooh, I love that question. So to me, I think contentment is actually more of like a discipline in our lives. It's it's kind of something we are able to choose, which means we can be content in a lot of different circumstances, but it's not necessarily something that's just going to come naturally, which I think we want. You know, we want to be content in, in suffering and trials, but it's a mindset. It's saying, okay, let me acknowledge the emotional pain or turmoil I'm experiencing right now. But but let me also look at the true reality of my circumstances. And I would imagine even people that have gone through the darkest of, of situations or are in those right now, if they're listening, are uh, things like trauma and loss and grief and so much more. I'm not at all minimizing those experiences. But I do believe in the midst of that, we can honor the both ends, like the, the, the pain and the anguish and the ways in which we can choose contentment. And so that's contentment. I think comfort, and again, I don't want to give the impression that I think comfort is inherently wrong, but I do think when it comes to this false sense of safety and security, that's where comfort can be our enemy. Mm-hmm. So it's great. Like I think about one of my favorite things to do. I live in the heart of downtown Chicago. And when I have some free time, I love to go up to the lakefront and I have this portable hammock. And I, and I hang it up and I read a book and I'm super comfortable, like especially if the weather's nice and I'm relaxed, right? That's not a bad thing. But when I'm seeking comfort to the detriment of living out according to my values because it's scary or it's, it's a risk to actually engage differently, that's when comfort really can be harmful in our lives. And the interesting thing is, you know, we choose it. And I would say for most of us in that moment, it feels comfortable. And then 10 minutes later, an hour later, a week later, we're discontent because it wasn't really who we truly are. Mm-hmm. So we choose comfort in the moment, but the but the cost is long-term discomfort. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about comfort food when you're talking about that, yeah. you know, or things like that where you think, oh, it's going to make me feel comfortable, but it's it's the false security. Totally. Yeah. So hamburgers. Yeah. He's really good. I mean, but an hour later, my stomach really hurts. Exactly. So then when is comfort a good thing or a healthy thing or a positive thing? 
Yeah. I mean, you know, I think this is sometimes, especially in kind of our Western cultural society that we fail to, to recognize the benefit of. I think comfort is good when it means, I'm not a big fan of the word self-care. I like to use self-stewardship because mm. I think self-care has been kind of wrapped by the greater culture and it feels indulgent when it actually should be a, a necessary discipline in our lives. So self-stewardship, I think the necessity of rest and and Sabbath and taking a break from social media and technology bringing that sense of comfort to me where that word lies is like the the rest and the security in moving away from all that's clogging our minds and our lives and our relationships that that kind of almost white noise so to speak that that can be so disruptive in our lives I am going to steal that phrase from you and I'll make sure to give you credit self stewardship I love that I've never heard somebody phrase it like that but just changing out that word really makes you think, how have I stewarded myself today? You know, and when yeah. you think of it like that, like you said, it, it just shifts like where it's not just the spa day, it's all the things you just mentioned. You know, I love that so much. That's a very good perspective on that. Yeah, it definitely changes the mindset, I think, into a way that that allows us to see it's necessary in our lives. Yeah. So a lot of times, those of us who feel led to, yes, I would like to change a certain area of my life, a big excuse people use is I don't have time. So since we're talking about the stewardship thing, let's talk about stewarding time and how we need to kind of embrace a little bit of, of change and maybe a little bit of uncomfortableness in that area. <laughs> yeah, I love that one. It's interesting when I was pitching the book to my publishing team, I had this question of what would be the most selling point of the book? And I thought, well, have everybody write down something they've wanted to change in their life, something significant, and then write down all the reasons why they haven't been able to. And once they did that, I said, cross out everything on the list that's an impossibility. And everybody wrote down, I don't have enough time. And everybody wanted to to cross that off as it's an impossibility. And I said, no, wait a minute. You're never going to get more time. Mm-hmm. Like There's never going to be a point in time where all of a sudden the, the day is 36 hours instead of 24. But even if it was, we would still figure out a way to fill up 36 hours of time, right? It's because we have this gain accomplishment mindset and it's very difficult, but I think a key principle to live by is every decision I make involves a loss Mm. and that's not meant to be pessimistic or glass half empty. It's just true. If I choose to say yes to this, then I'm also choosing to say no to this and we don't consider the loss side of things. And so when it comes to time, we've committed ourselves to a number of things that fill up our day. Do those things actually reflect what is most important to us? Chances are there's something on that list that it, that is a no. It does not reflect what's most important to me. So am I willing, because all it is is willingness, am I willing to incur the loss of saying no to this, but also recognizing it's to the gain of something else, the gain of investing in my relationships, the gain of investing in self-stewardship, and so I think that to me is the key. And I don't want to minimize the difficulty in this decision because I realize like saying no to things is very difficult, but it is possible. And so to me, that's the answer to I don't have enough time. You do. It's just a matter of figuring out like what on the list needs to go. And even though it's going to be uncomfortable, that's really more in line with what's most important to me than the things I've committed to now. Yeah. And I I love this too, this conversation, because it's also goes back to being intentional. I think for me anyways, I can speak for myself on this, the things that suck my time away, I don't even realize they're sucking my time away, like phone time or social media time, because we don't schedule it. 
you know, and so when you're not scheduling something, you kind of are just doing it all the time and in random pockets of time. And if we really were to look down and like write down how many times we picked up our phone or actually you don't even have to, if you have an iPhone, it will tell you, which is a frightening number to look at. So, um, yeah, you know, that's been something I've been very convicted of is I've, I personally have to leave my phone in the other room or just so that I'm not, you know, tempted to grab it and everything. And phone's just one example. I know there's a lot of things that are kind of time wasters that we don't even realize, you know? Yeah. It's all about, like you said, intentionality. Like, am I going to actually bring all of my decision-making, even the tiniest little decisions into focus every day? Yeah. Yeah. So I have a couple more questions for you before we wrap up. I would love to know for you, I would love to know just even if you have a story to share or if you want to sum it up however you want, what embracing uncomfortable has looked like for you? Mm, yeah, I so for me in my life, uh, first of all, it looked like defining what my core values were. Yeah. So I so knowing those allows me to then pause every day, which I do. I use my phone. This is where tech, I make technology work for me. I yeah. don't work for technology. <laughs> and so I have in my phone little breaks throughout the day where I pause and I reflect on, okay, have my interactions and my choices so far reflected what's most important to me? Um, I tell the story in my book about going to a local coffee shop and there was this woman ordering a cup of tea that was just like absolutely absurd. And the lady behind me, who could have been me on any given day, uh, was having a fit over it, like just loudly you know, grumbling and trying to get everybody else riled up against this lady and how she was so inconveniencing everybody else. And and so I got up to the register and I just kind of impulsively ordered this lady's drink and offered to pay for it. And I'm telling you, I could have been her. So this is not saying I'm any type of saint or anything. It was a teaching moment for me. And she kind of got all flustered and embarrassed. And she was like, I'm so sorry. You know, I was trying to get to this meeting. And, and I was like, I hear you. That could have easily been me. And I walked away from the conversation, which there's a whole lot more detail to it. But I, I walked away recognizing, wow, in that moment... But A, again, I could have easily been that woman who was super flustered and just getting everybody else riled up and behaving quite poorly. And you could argue she was justified in it. But it really just struck me at how intentional that piece of embracing uncomfortable requires. But in the moment when I, when I kind of what I believe lived out my value of relationship, um, that kind of took me outside my comfort zone of A, having a conversation with a stranger, B, being nice to somebody who was being really rude see, recognizing that that could have easily been me. Um, I found so much greater joy and contentment in that. And that's just a small story, but it plays out in so much of my life. Like when I'm in conflict with other people, when I've done something wrong and I need to take ownership and I'm embarrassed or ashamed, or I felt like it was justified, even though the, the attitude or the behavior wasn't, I keep reminding myself that yes, it's hard in the moment, but the outcome in the long run is so sweet. Mm hmm. And I love, you know, one thing I'm hearing you say in this is sometimes being uncomfortable will inconvenience us, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yes. like you have to go out of your way to do maybe something extra or stop and take the time to, you know, enter into that relationship as opposed to, oh, whatever, let the next person deal with it or, you know, just kind of keep going throughout your day. Yeah, yeah. very true. So one other question I have for you is how expectations from others and, and our own expectations affect what we think that we value. 
Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question because I was debating sharing another story, which I won't go into detail, but it's this idea of, again, going back to the saying yes. And I think we oftentimes place other people's expectations of us. And I don't even know if they're always accurate on our decision making. And so we're afraid to say no, because we think I'm going to let somebody down. I'm going to disappoint them. I'm not going to get to this place in life that I want to be at. And so I, again, in the process of writing the book and putting these principles into action in my own life, I've had to say no to some things that have disappointed other people. And some have have walked away with that disappointment and I don't know if they ever turned it around, but others have come back and because we're in, you know, a longer term relationship, whether it's a work relationship or a friendship relationship. And even though they were disappointed in the decision, my consistency and my character got through to them at some point and they realized like, okay, I'm disappointed, but you're not the disappointment. Mm. Like, yes, I wanted you to be involved in this or yes, I wanted you to commit to this. But I think in the long run, they actually respected the boundary that I set. Yeah. And here's the key. Like, even if they were disappointed in me, if I respond with respect and kindness, I'm still doing the right thing. And I think that sometimes another place we get stuck in is if the other person doesn't react the way that we want them to. And again, checking ourselves and making sure that we've been honest and authentic in our own convictions. That doesn't mean that the decision was wrong. Mm hmm. And that can be hard. You know, we want people to like us. We want people to be happy with us. Um, But I have found that, again, if you're consistent in your character, people come back around. That's so true. And I have discovered, too, the more I do that, you know, like you said, put the boundaries up and say no to things that, you know, I would have loved to say yes to just out of strictly not because it lined up with my values, but strictly because what you mentioned, don't want to let people down. Or maybe it was a really awesome thing. That's what's hard for me is when it is an awesome thing they're doing and they want you to, you know, do be a part of it. And you're just going, but it doesn't like, no, God didn't tell me yes. But here's what's interesting. The more I'm able to do that, say no, when I know it's supposed to be a no, I feel like I then can extend more grace to people when they tell me no, you know, because it's like, I get it now. I'm like, oh, okay. Like you just, this doesn't line up with what you're doing or God told you no. So it's like, it totally made me because now I get no's, you know, on on stuff. And I I just go, okay, like it doesn't sit on me and make me bitter or anything like that. It just, I just go, okay, you know, and so that was an interesting thing that I did not see coming when I started implementing that practice. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's such a great point. I love it. Yeah. Okay. So as we wrap up today, are there any final words that you want to share with the listeners? Of course, let them know where they can connect with you and um, all that, but any other words of encouragement? Yeah. You can connect with me at debgorton.com and it's Gorton like the fish sticks, G-O-R-T-O-N, um, <laughs> or embracinguncomfortable.com has its own website where there's resources and community around this practice. I would say my, my, my parting words of wisdom is, is commit to this process in the small steps. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in life we see change as this big, you know, massive transformation in our lives. And yet, I would say the more sustainable and impactful change is in the smaller everyday decisions. And I also think it's more manageable. So if you are, you know, if you are passionate about or even just remotely interested in embracing uncomfortable in your own life, start small. Yeah, that's such a good word of advice as we wrap up. Well, Deb, thank you again for taking the time to come on the show. I can't wait to release this episode and have the listeners get your book into their hands. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the time. 
Are you ready to embrace uncomfortable? Be sure to grab a copy of Deb's book, Embracing Uncomfortable. And I'm actually giving away a few copies of that book to some lucky email subscribers. To be on that VIP list, all you have to do is text the phrase Real Talk Giveaway, that's all one word, to the number 44222 on your cell phone. Or you can sign up directly on my website at rachelgilbert.com. All right, friends, that's all for today. I pray this episode brought you one step closer to getting real, living free, and pursuing your God-given dreams. I'll see you back here next time on Real Talk with Rachel.